we don't need to let chestnuts roasting on an open fire and let it snow restrict when we can sing about the incarnation in our churches. You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, come one, come all to the Worship Review, the podcast which charitably, critically examines the texts of songs sung in the church and by the church, really by the church. There's probably some songs that are sung in the church that are not sung by the church that we don't review. And uh, today we have the joy of welcoming back Daniel Mount of the Expository Songs Project and many other uh, projects. Hello, Daniel. It's good to have you back. And uh, I am joined by my friend and co-host, Colin. Hello, Colin. I'm Colin, but my uh, middle name is actually Peter, and so my French teacher would never say Colin. She didn't like to say that, so she would call me Pierre. Yeah. So in, in French Pierre. class, I was Pierre. That's actually pretty cool. I yeah. think uh, Pierre is a much more fitting name for you. I really, <laughs> I really loved that French teacher, by the way, and she was great. So Madame Navarro, if you're out there, Hope you're doing well. Ooh, that's a cool Madame Navarro. Yeah, Madame Navarro. Oh, Navarro. Okay. And um, today we're taking a look at another song by Stuart Townend. Uh, listeners may recall from this podcast that uh, Stuart Townend has had um, one big hit and one uh, song which, but for one wording, would otherwise have been also a big hit. So to be specific, Stuart Townend is the English singer, songwriter, Christian um, musician who is famous for um, In Christ Alone, which we gave a five out of five, pretty resounding endorsement. And also uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, which we both gave twos, Colin. Uh, oh you gave it goodness. two black caps, and I gave it two five fours, which was, in hindsight, a very confusing uh, thing to give it um, because it is three digits after each other. And the song that we're doing today is called From the Squalor of a Borrowed Stable. Yes, he walked my road and he felt my pain, joys and sorrows that I know so well. Yet his righteous steps give me hope again. I will follow my Emmanuel. So get your thesauruses out because we are digging through <laughs> this song. But before we do, uh, Daniel, you recommended this song. So I'd like to know um, what is this song about? This song takes a scriptural concept, the scriptural concept of Emmanuel. From Isaiah seven fourteen, and Matthew chapter one also refers to Isaiah seven fourteen, that says that uh, Emmanuel is God with us. One of the most amazing messianic prophecies of the Old Testament is that Messiah will not just be an amazing, divinely anointed human being, 
but the Messiah would be God with us. So this song takes the concept that Emmanuel is God with us and unfolds it through chronology. A point on the title, it's often referred to as from the squalor of a borrowed stable because Stuart Townend is based in the UK. And in the UK, it's customary to refer to Christian songs by their first name. Uh, it's actually listed uh, in a number of places as Emmanuel. So Emmanuel is the principal idea of this song. Uh, but because it's a UK-based hymn, it is uh often and commonly referred to by its first name. Very good. Thank you, Daniel. And one thing I notice about the song is that, uh, if, am I correct in uh, thinking that it's originally devised as, a, as an Advent song? Yes. Which I, I find curious because nothing about this to me would necessarily... Uh, indicate that it must be an Advent song. It seems like it's a song that tells the life of Christ. And unlike many Advent songs or Christmas songs, it actually goes beyond the uh, the incarnation and the birth of Christ and then, you know, goes through a narrative of his uh, life and ministry and even what he's doing right now, which is actually pretty cool. In this way, it's somewhat like in Christ alone. In Christ alone who took on flesh. Uh, or it's like Joy to the World. A number of songs that we sometimes sing at Christmas time start with what is or may be a reference to the Incarnation or uh, the birth in Bethlehem, but proceed beyond there and have much content that's great to sing throughout the year. Yeah, and I was just going to say, in addition to that, that's exactly right. And and the like, there's kind of a vice versa going on too, which is sometimes we only want to talk about the Incarnation around Advent, Christmas time. So when I was leading worship in a church which did a lot of Stuart Townend and Getty songs, we actually did some of those songs that you would call Christmas songs at throughout the year because actually the incarnation was just a part of that song. The, the song went through other aspects of Christ's ministry and death and resurrection. And I kind of like that. I like it at Christmas time. I like at Christmas time to be talking about Christ crucified on the cross because that's what you do. He wasn't just born to be born, you know? Um, and But also, um, the incarnation matters. And sometimes if we, are, well, the incarnation, excuse me, let me put that differently. The incarnation has meaning beyond just the context of the Christmas season. And it's easy to think about the incarnation in a more narrow or kind of routine way around Christmas time. Yeah, yeah, this is what we talk about around Christmas time. But sometimes if you sing it at a different season, if you're, if you're singing about it and thinking about it at, in a different season, it helps you, it, you know, you have the affectations of the culture around the time of the season away. And it, and it might give you a fresh perspective and help you make fresh connections with other ideas in scripture or other aspects of the gospel if you look at the incarnation at other times. So I love a song like this. Same here. To say that we can only sing about the incarnation in December would almost be restricting ourselves like saying we can only sing about the cross in April. It, there is a cultural component here. In our culture, there's plenty of people who do not want to hear Christmas music music 
until after Thanksgiving and before December 25th or t- through September 25th because the, the cultural or secular Christmas music is often talking about snow and other things that are very specific to a month of the year where they don't make sense in April. Yeah. But we can sing about the incarnation throughout the year, just like we can sing about the cross throughout the year, because we don't need to let chestnuts roasting on an open fire and let it snow restrict when we can sing about the incarnation in our churches. The songs that sing about, yeah, chestnuts roasting on an open fire and the snow and Christmas trees, something's happening when we sing those songs, which is we're just, we're, we're putting those things into a category that is this is seasonal this is just this is again this is a ritual i guess is maybe what i'm getting at this is a ritualistic pattern that we just repeat and it's good sometimes to have things of god in those patterns i'm not against like the church calendar or something like that but you might have a song that is all about the incarnation it doesn't have stuff about snow and Christmas trees and chestnuts roasting on an open fire but because you sing that song only at a particular season your brain might almost kind of involuntarily activate that same kind of categorization process where you're like, this is this is a ritual, right? So even though it's, even though, so you're basically turning the incarnation without maybe even knowing it or realizing it, if you keep it on a seasonal basis only, you're maybe turning it into a ritual without, and, and, there, and therefore like, taking it out of the realm of your thought where you kind of criticize something and by criticize I mean investigate and think more deeply about like I don't know it just seems like a potential problem I, I want to make a three hour podcast where we talk about this because uh, Daniel when you mentioned people saying I don't want to hear Christmas music until after Thanksgiving and then also abruptly after Christmas it has to stop um, I, I think about this as a way that kind of American consumeristic and marketing culture really latched on to this Christian holiday, um, which also itself has confusing and perplexing uh, history. Um, not, not of course, the birth of Christ, but then all the stuff that's layered on top of that, like chestnuts on a fire and whatnot. Um, such that Mistletoe. people associate Christmas music with um, going to the department store because they're playing this uh, yeah, let's exactly. sleigh bells ringling, ting, ting, tingling stuff. And so on the one hand, it makes sense that you would not want to uh, initiate that uh, ritual early. And it also makes sense that you might get tired of the sleigh bells ringling, ting, ting, tingling um, pretty quickly. And so you, you want to really regulate when it comes in. But I think you can't talk about Christmas in the U.S. as it's celebrated the broader culture without talking about the habits of consumption. It's no coincidence that people say after Thanksgiving because what happens after Thanksgiving? Black Friday. I think we, there's, there's a lot to think about when it comes to how American consumerism intersects with this holiday and I'm not like against giving presents or anything like that. I'm just saying there there is a lot underneath that. I mean, and also, I mean, why Thanksgiving, right? Uh, German Advent calendars begin the first Sunday of Advent, like the church calendar. 
or some of the newer ones begin on December. Why, why Thanksgiving? I think the uh, the marketing and the now. Let's talk about the lyrics, shall we? Maybe. From the squalor of a borrowed stable, by the spirit and a virgin's faith, to the anguish and the shame of scandal, came the savior of the human race. From the squalor of a borrowed stable, by the spirit and a virgin's faith, to the anguish and the shame of scandal, came the savior of the human race. But the skies were filled with the praise of hell. Shepherds listen as the angels tell of the gift of God come down to man at the dawning of Emmanuel. But the skies were filled with the praise of heaven. Shepherds listen as the angels tell of the gift of God come down to man at the dawning of Emmanuel. Colin, there's a lot here, isn't there? There is quite a bit. I'll start small, I guess, and we'll see where we go. I I, I immediately kind of first gravitated to this by the Spirit and a virgin's faith, and I was thinking about what, is it, what does by a virgin's faith mean? By the Spirit makes more sense because we understand the incarnation. And at first I was having a little trouble with this. I was thinking, like, what on earth is meant here? Um, Luke 1.38 mentions Mary replying um, to the angel, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And I, so I think what's going on here is this is Townend's way of saying, not that Mary's faith was... Uh, essential in the sense that like God depended upon Mary. But I, I wonder if he's referencing the fact that Mary believed, like Mary believed what God told her. And um, and I, I think it's just kind of as simple as that. I, so I, I don't want to overcomplicate that. I, I don't know. Did you, Daniel, did you have any thoughts on that line? I do. I think what he's trying to do lyrically is start with an arresting line that catches your attention from the squalor of a borrowed stable. Yeah. But he doesn't want the song to begin at the birth because Jesus was God with us for nine months before he was born. And so I think what he wants to do is make a one line reference back to the incarnation. Cause at some level he wants the song to begin at the incarnation, I think, but it's actually beginning at the stable. So I, I believe what we're doing here is taking a one line flashback to the incarnation. And I think by can it be used in different senses, different degrees of how much it's connecting. I, I think I, I'm an, I at least am understanding by here as these are part of the process. This is, these are checkpoints along the way of how we get here the incarnation happening through the spirit, but Mary saying, be it unto me, as you have said, um, I accept, I receive this re responsibility versus of course, God knew what would happen. And he wouldn't yeah. have, we, we trust that he wouldn't have said the angel Gabriel, somebody who we, who we knew would say no. But if Mary would have been like, this is ridiculous. There's no way I can do this. Joseph's going to dump me. Um, you know, 
God knew that wasn't going to happen. He knew that she would say, be it to me as you have said, uh, but her willingness is, is what I believe it's referring to. Yeah, I think so. I'd agree. Uh, well, then then we've got um, you know other bits I thought in here that were interesting. You mentioned this, Daniel, the scandal. So he talks about the anguish and the shame of scandal. So here we've got the idea of Mary being pregnant, even though she's, uh, you know, Joseph, uh, you know, Joseph isn't the father. So this is very scandalous. And, and so you've just got all these circumstances, just kind of um, visceral ways of explaining that Christ didn't come into the world, uh, you know, just into a palace and, you know, in the great hospital and, and to a family that was just, you know, perfect. And no, I mean, this, he came into the, the human, kind of very human humanity, right? You're kind of messy, um, disgusting in some cases and, and scandalous circumstances. So it's a nice, you know, just a few lines. You're able to communicate that really clearly. Some of the most effective songwriting happens with contrast. Yeah. And I think part of the reason I like this opening verse so much, it's not the only Christmas song to talk about the the scandal, the squalor. It, it's, uh, Andrew Peterson has another one, for instance. Yeah. But it does it well, and if all you had was the second half of this verse... It would be a different song. There's the joy that you expect to find in a Christmas song is in the second half here, but it's set up by the contrast in the first half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And you get uh, really nice, uh, again, the skies being filled, the praises. So you got holy things. You got things that we think of as uh, the angels, gift of God, uh, dawning. These are all things that are bright and beautiful and exciting and yes yeah, so you got that great contrast with what happens before i don't know tyler do you have any thoughts on these lines yeah this this contrast thing hit me really really strong where you you see this i mean poverty and a lack of any kind of material good and then in the heavens above you have the skies being filled with the angels praise this, this praise of heaven um, do you think the anguish, I mean, I just have some questions about some of these words. The anguish, is this the anguish of childbirth, the anguish of labor, or is this the anguish of Israel awaiting a savior? Um, what do you think, Daniel? I could be wrong, but if we're taking it as part of the line, I think it's probably the anguish and the shame of scandal. There is anguish other than the scandal. The pain of childbirth, the the pain of Roman oppression, but I think if we take the whole line to the anguish and the shame of scandal, um, it was very emotionally challenging. We're sure for Joseph when he heard that Mary was pregnant, he was minded to put her away quietly, um, and then for Mary to know this would have been very anguishing for her as well. So I'm guessing that we're talking about the anguish and the shame being two words that are descriptive of scandal mm. okay king of heaven now the friend of sinners humble servant in the father's hands filled with power and the holy spirit 
filled with mercy for the broken man. Okay, and then we have King of Heaven, now the friend of sinners, humble servant in the Father's hands, filled with power in the Holy Spirit, filled with mercy for the broken man. Yes, he walked my road and he felt my pain. Joys and sorrows that I know so well Yet his righteous steps give me hope again I will follow my Emmanuel Yes, he walked my road and felt my pain Joys and sorrows that I know so well Yet his righteous steps give me hope again I will follow my Emmanuel Daniel, can you talk a little bit about these lines? Sure. Well, even though this isn't a word-for-word -word reference, this song shares a, a this verse shares a similar theme with Hebrews four twelve, which is for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. This is talking about Jesus being our high priest. He's not somebody who can sympathize with us. He's somebody who can empathize or who can only sympathize with us. Let me retake that line. He's not somebody who can only sympathize with us. He's somebody who can empathize. Yeah. Uh, also references this title, Friend of Sinners. And I was struck for the first time, I guess. I've heard this title all the time, and I've heard songs which reference Jesus as Friend of Sinners. And I didn't, I guess, fully realize this is a it is, of course, a biblical title, which I had guessed that, but I didn't realize this was a title that is, in effect, derived from something that was said of Christ, like that because Jesus was was eating uh, with sinners. So you got Matthew 11 is one place where we see it. There are other places, too, in, in other Gospels. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. So this is a title that maybe even could have been used to disparage Christ, but which he, he wears proudly, and he's pleased to be a friend of sinners. Um, really nice. Oh, yes. That is beautiful. I, and I was thinking about another title in this line, too, King of Heaven, um, and how this, when he was, as the song talks about later, crucified, um, above him is written uh, King of the Jews, and how that's used to mock him. But he actually bears this title most fully, and he even scorns the scorn that they gave him. He even mocks the mockery that they gave him by taking up this title rightly. And so, yeah, I, I love that it's it's taking these titles that were used either mockingly or um, critically of him to praise him. Can I ask a question? What did people think about this... Uh... Yes, he walked my road and he felt my pain, joys and sorrows that I know so well, yet his righteous steps give me hope again, I'll follow my Emmanuel. I know my initial reaction is, okay, this, this is true in a sense, like it is true that Jesus walked my road and felt my pain, but I'm wondering if that is the best perspective, like it's almost... Again, you can tell me if I'm being maybe too sensitive to something or, or maybe reading this wrongly, but I almost feel like this is, I don't know if cheapening is the right word, but it's not really about my road and about my pain 
like like it's it's not so much that Christ relates to me. I mean, obviously he does, and we know that he relates to us in terms, you know, he was tempted, you know, all these things. And but I, I, this seemed like a moment of that that seemed a little bit too close to to uh, to kind of the, the 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 lens of my feelings and the lens of my experience. Am I am I just reacting maybe to something that's not there? Or? I, I can see that. I think it it might even be underwhelming, right? King of heaven, now the friend of sinners, humble servant in the Father's hands, filled with power, the Holy Spirit, filled with mercy for the broken man. And then it's like we, we kind of we move to the side and we talk about um, how he walked my road. Um, when you say that it's true that he walked my road, do you mean in the sense that uh, we do not have a high priest who's not acquainted with our weaknesses? Yeah, or is that, yeah that's okay. what I'm thinking of. Okay, that makes sense. What do you think, Daniel? I think Colin has a valid point. Maybe it is too personal. But if you're going to have something that's this personal, you want to root it in objective truth. And at least if we're going to have something that's this personal, it's rooted in the objective truth of the first half of the verse. And I like, and I will say, you got even got something quite objective in the the penultimate line: his righteous steps, and it's metaphorically tied with what's said before because it's both about walking. So he walked my road. You could compare. You could compare with his righteous steps. So he does the things. Maybe this is just a clunky way, I guess, of saying um, he went through. He lived. So I live. At, like my journey through life, my journey is life. Life is like a journey. There's a metaphor there. Um, my life is filled with pain. Um, you know, my life has joys and sorrows. Christ also lived, had pain and joy and sorrows, but he did it with righteous steps. So as he moved through life, i.e., you know, time and walked, uh, he did it perfectly, and this gives me hope. I think that's probably what he's trying to say. So, I, I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe I just find it a little clunky or something. I think you're absolutely right, and if we think back to that passage from Hebrews about our high priest, Jesus, our great high priest, right? he was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin, it mentions there in Hebrews, and so I think this might be a cohesive unit where uh, he was he was tempted like us, he lived a human life like us, he has a human body, uh, like us and felt human frailty and pain and you know even I, I, it's funny that it says he felt my pain because he felt much more excruciating pain well, than that's I've it. ever felt either yeah <laughs> so uh it's it's interesting but it it's um the I think the whole cohesive unit is hinting at his uh his priesthood and his um yeah his being without sin in his knowledge of human frailty and that I like that it draws us to follow him, to uh, serve him and honor him. What you've said, I think, gets to expresses in a much better way what I was trying to express, which is, okay, it's true that he walked my road, but his road was way harder than my road. And he felt my pain, but his pain was way harder than my pain. Like, I, I don't know, like... <laughs> So I don't know, there's just something there that's kind of like, is this the best reference for seeing Christ that he, and again, I, obviously Stuart Townend says more later on in the song, right? And he says more here. So there's more context. So that's why I just was like, well, maybe I'm reacting too harshly to this. There's one other point I think we need to keep in mind uh, looking at this verse as well as the rest of the song is that 
unlike some songs you've reviewed, these aren't random thoughts. They're they're tied together in uh, to a larger theme. And that larger theme is the as we consider it in, in the states, the title of the song, Emmanuel. How do we tie the idea of Jesus being our Emmanuel, our God with us, into his earthly ministry? So the, the first verse is how do we tie this idea of Jesus being God with us in incarnation? He's physically with us. How do we tie this idea of him being God with us in his earthly ministry? Um, that's at least one place you can take that is he's God with us in how he walked our road, felt our pain, how his righteous steps give us hope again. Through the kisses of a friend's betrayal, he was lifted on a cruel cross. He was punished for a world's transgressions. He was suffering to save the lost. Through the kisses of a friend's betrayal, he was lifted on a cruel cross. He was punished for the world's transgressions. He was suffering to save the lost. He fights for breath. He fights for me. Loosing sinners from the claims of hell. And with a shout, our souls are free. Death defeated by Emmanuel. He fights for breath. He fights for me. Loosing sinners from the claims of hell. And with a shout, our souls are free. Death defeated by Emmanuel. Colin, what have we here? We have a lot of truth. We have the gospel. We have kind of an inescapable confrontation of the reason that Christ was born. And so we, we have, again, more about the depths of sin. So we've got Christ going to the cross through a betrayal. Um, we have the idea of the cross being cruel. Uh, we have the idea of punishment. So, which I like. So you've got, and again, you got little contrasts within contrasts. So, the kisses of a friend's betrayal. That sentence alone has a contrast because we kisses of a friend are not normally betrayal, mm -hmm. but in the case of Christ, as obviously we know from Scripture, that the one who kissed him was the one who betrayed him. Um, and we also have the idea of Christ being punished for transgression. So we have Judas betraying him, and we have a world in general um, transgressing. So we have law-breaking on an individual level, we have law-breaking on a, on a sort of broader level, and the, the only language of punishment and suffering in this line is applied to Christ. So it's a, kind of a neat way of drawing comparisons. I think the song is also, Talon is, is very careful here about his soteriology in that the, um, the transgressions are the world's, in like a kind of vague sense. He was suffering to save the lost. Um, you notice, like as a, if you're, if you are reformed, then the obvious word missing is the elect or something like that. Um, sure. loosing sinners from the claims of hell. And so I think he's being very careful. I don't mean that in a bad way. I think if you want your song to be sung widely, then uh, to some extent you can't be, you, you can't hem yourself in uh, too much. Uh, but 
it's all, I would say, biblical here, right? He was punished for the world's transgressions. He was suffering to save the lost, the lost sheep, and loosing sinners from the claims of hell, no matter what your views on how Christ's salvific work uh, brought to fruition, these are true things. I think you could uh, apply that third line, he was punished for the world's transgressions improperly, if you wanted to, and say he uh, he paid the price for all sin everywhere by all people, and I think that would be an error. Uh, but I don't think that's what's what's going on here. Daniel, what do you think? I'm Reformed also. We want to be scriptural in our theology and scriptural in our language. And I don't want to be more scriptural than scripture in our language. You know, we, because we have, for instance, John 1.29, uh, John sees Jesus coming towards, towards him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when you have a writer using scriptural language, it doesn't usually bother me, and it doesn't really bother me here. I think that he's using scriptural language uh, in the first two references, uh, punished for the world's transgressions, suffering to save the lost. These are both uh, references to wording of a number of passages. Uh, but then he makes it more specific later, loosing sinners from the claims of hell, and with a shout, our souls are free. I don't see this as an evangelistic song. I see this as a song that's intended to be sung by believers in a congregational setting. And of all things, I think the word that might most limit and restrict be the lens through which you view the rest of the verse is our, with a shout, our souls are free. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I I don't think there's a, a... there might be a lack of specificity, but I don't necessarily know that it's a lack of scriptural clarity. Sure. Mm. I think um, just to, not necessarily as a rebuttal, but even for more context, uh, I, I wish it said something like he takes away the sins of the world. And then, or here we have, he was X for X transgressions. I wish it was, he was punished for our transgressions. Like it has it in Isaiah 53, but it, it substitutes that for the world's. And so uh, I just think that's uh, he was punished for our transgressions would be uh, almost a literal uh, presentation from Isaiah 53. Substituting our for the world's is not necessarily a problem, as you mentioned from John um, and what John the Baptist said about Christ. Um, So I think it's okay, And I like the I like the doublet here. He fights for breath. He fights for me because it gives this. it gives this moment of Christ's anguish on the cross, which deep and horrifying, um, a real visible image where someone—I mean, it's actually kind of kind of gory. Someone is fighting for breath, slowly suffocating, uh, bleeding out, but ultimately will not die from blood loss, but from lack of oxygen. Um, and then that fight has a purpose. And I think on the show we've talked about in the past. Um, some sometimes songs tend to emphasize the the degree to which this was about me, and so he fights for me could be offensive uh, to that sensibility, but I don't think it's a problem at all. Here, he's he is fighting for God's glory and for me at the same time, and I don't I don't think it's necessarily a problem to say he fights for me without also acknowledging that other thing immediately. But I could be wrong. What do you think, Colin? Well, this might be one of those times where we're thinking about it more than the artist did. I so it, I think this line encapsulates some 
thoughtfulness about Christian approach to suffering. So, for example, you know, we have a big problem, or not a big problem, but there's a bit of a problem in the idea of, well, we should be willing to lose our life. We should be willing to die. Um, Well, how do we reconcile that with, um, you know, should we be willing to suffer? What do we do with somebody who's suffering near the end of their life? Like, should, I don't know, like, suffering and living and dying tangled together in the Christian life in complex and not always easy to figure out ways. But with this simple line, you actually get some resolution there because Christ's purpose was to die. We know that he, it's not like it surprised him when he was on the cross. He's not fighting for breath because he's hoping he can somehow stay alive and not have to die on the cross. Like he's committed to the cross. He's committing to dying. But he also, I think, is not committing suicide, Mm -hmm. okay? What Christ is not doing is he is embracing suffering with the joy of having a purpose, uh, of of carrying out that purpose faithfully. And I think there's some wisdom here for Christians in this idea, and it's communicated nicely in this line. Christian, too— we fight. We fight for every breath. We we continue to, as long as we our body is working, we live for the glory of God, right? We don't simply say, "Well, I'm kind of unhappy now, or I'm suffering now," or, or again, I don't mean to be trite, right? I, I should, uh, you know, or you know, this has been a long, difficult thing. I should just be able to go to rest. It's like, well, no, God decides when we when we rest. And in the meantime, we fight to live because we know that as long as we live, um, we're still living according to the purposes of God, and it's our job. You know, we don't know how, by our suffering, we are um, doing the work of of Christ. And I just think this is—it's nice to think about Christ not simply committing suicide, not committing suicide, but but actually fighting for breath while he is carrying out his— purpose to die when this line after that says uh or two after well i i have thoughts about both lines so i'll start with the one right after losing sinners from the claims of hell is this uh defeating death and uh redeeming his people from uh the domain of darkness uh <laughs> i don't mean to be too obvious but it's sometimes we do need to disambiguate and with a shout is this uh what he shouts when he says it is finished i think so and, and that is how I would understand this line. It's not immediately clear from the scriptural passages because we kind of have to pull from two gospels to get there. Uh, we pull from Luke uh, twenty three forty six, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, it says when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, but doesn't exactly say what he said when he cried out with a loud voice. And then the structure of the sentence seems to suggest to me that when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, that's coming after he cried out with a loud voice. Uh, so then we turn to John nineteen thirty. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So I would take... Uh, it is finished, or to tell us die, as uh, in all likelihood that thing that Luke twenty three says he cried out with a loud voice 
even though we have to pull from two gospels to get there. I, I do think that is what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, it is finished. The work of redemption is complete. Interestingly, with a shout, our souls are free, death defeated by Emmanuel. The death defeated to me sounds like it's talking about the resurrection, um, but somewhat in, you know, indirectly. Um, because we, we actually don't get much about the third day afterward because we jump to... Now we're standing in the place of honor Crowned with glory on the highest throne Interceding for his own beloved Till his father calls to bring them home Now he's standing in the place of honor Crowned with glory on the highest throne interceding for his own beloved till his father calls us to bring him home. Then the skies will part as the trumpet sounds Hope of heaven or the fear of hell But the bride will run to her lover's arms Giving glory to Emmanuel Then the skies will part as the trumpet sounds hope of heaven or the fear of hell, but the bride will run to her lover's arms, giving glory to Emmanuel. Daniel, what do we have here? Well, we have three things, really. If he was going to have that second verse about Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us during his earthly ministry, and he's only going to have four verses, there's a lot of ground to cover in this last verse because when you're thinking about this concept of Emmanuel being God with us, you have to do the incarnation, you have to do the birth. That's what verse 1 talks about. You kind of want to talk about his earthly ministry. And that's what verse 2 is talking about, how Jesus is God with us during his earthly ministry. And then we have verse 3, which is talking about Jesus as God with us um, on the cross as well as the night before, talking about what he's doing in the plan of redemption, but also the with us part, how it applies to us. He's loosing us from the claims of hell with a shot. Our souls are free. So you kind of have to have those three verses. And then you have a lot to cover in this last verse. Now he's standing in the place of honor, crowned with glory on the highest throne. That's his ascension, his glorification. Uh, but then you have today, interceding for his own beloved till his father calls to bring them home. That's how he's God with us today. He's with us as he intercedes for us. And then you have, when you talk about Jesus being Emmanuel and God with us, where else could you conclude this song but in the eschaton, in the second coming? Then the skies will part as the trumpet sounds, hope of heaven or the fear of hell. When the trumpet sounds, it will be joy for some and sheer terror for others. But the bride will run to her lover's arms, giving glory to Emmanuel, uh, ending with us being physically in the presence of our God with us. Yeah, I, I quite. I won't. Uh, I won't restate what Daniel says. I agree with all of it. What do folks think about the bride will run to her lover's arms? I mean, it's true. It's true that um, a husband is a lover. It's also. But the idea of lover is also kind of a narrow way to think of a husband too. It's a kind of romantic connotation. And again, I'm not I'm not going to pretend that we have to totally sanitize the idea of the. I mean, the bride of Christ is a is a is a good 
it, you know, it's a biblical descriptor for a reason. Song of Solomon is in scripture for a reason. I mean, so I'm, I'm not going to say that lover is out of bounds per se, but I do also find it a really narrow and perhaps not quite on point way to think about what the bride of Christ is in this context of this verse. I don't know if anybody else has thoughts. Yeah, I do. I mean, I wondered if it did say husband, then it would just be bride and husband, which is fine. But it, it's almost as if bride implies husband. Um, because no, when it says bride will run to her lover's arms, there's no sense of which we're not aware that these are the husband is the lover, right? There's no sense of which yeah. is something else. What did you think, Daniel? That is definitely the line in this song that causes me to raise my eyebrows the most. Uh, it is... It's it's the one that makes you go, hmm. I do think he's probably intentionally pulling from Song of Solomon imagery here. Yeah. Uh, but there's also, in, in, he could say, bridal render her husband's arms. You could say the bridal render her bridegroom's arms. Yeah. I think there's a couple things going on here, and I'm not saying I defend this situation, this, this choice, but I think at some level he was probably trying to avoid cliché trying to say something in a way it hadn't been said before. And sometimes that artistic bent of a songwriter is really helpful. There are some marvelous lines in this song, uh, like his righteous steps give me hope again, for instance. Um, so I think there may be a desire to avoid cliche here as part of it. And then I have, as, as an aspiring songwriter, I think Stuart Townend may possibly be the greatest living lyricist i try mm. to study all his lyrics deeply and i've looked at many if not most of his published songs at a level of detail not too far off from how i've thought about this one i think he likes to poke us a little bit from time to time and a few of his lyrics say something in in a way that makes us take a step back and think that's not always the best for a congregational song you don't always want that but uh, I, I think there is that element to his writing, too, of he will sometimes try not to go totally outside the boundaries of what would be appropriate in a congregational setting, but push just a little bit close to that boundary once in a while to make us go, huh, you can sing that in church? Well, maybe we can. Mm. I wanted one more th thing. I wanted to say one more thing, and that is I think there was an error in the lyrics that I read the interceding for his own beloved part. After that, many lyrics have till his father calls us to bring them home. Then the lyrics that I read said till his father calls us to bring him home. I went to his website to try to get as close as I could to the authoritative source of the lyric. And uh, that's stuarttownen.co.uk slash song slash Emmanuel. And it's uh, now he's standing in the place of honor, crowned with glory on the highest throne, interceding for his own beloved till his father calls to bring them home, which may be there may be other recorded versions out there. But at least as it stands now, that's how Stuart would believe the song ought to be correctly rendered. And that is what I hear when I listen to the song. And I like okay. that a lot. It's very clear. Yes. Um, it, it, it it's very clear when i first read it, i was like till the father calls us to bring him home i was like what who wrote these what is this talking about <laughs> but till his father calls to bring them home makes really good sense and yeah. yep. uh, is very biblical so 
with that said, let's jump to uh, concluding thoughts. Colin, I'll start with you. I think on the whole, this is a pretty stellar song. Uh, the the trick for me, okay, I'll I'll say right, uh, right at the get get go, it 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 overcomes the bar. I mean, I could endorse a song like this. I think in church, I don't think it's a perfect song. Not that a song has to be perfect, but I I don't like Lover. I I I just I, it's not heretical. It's not erroneous. It it's not going to drop it down into the depths of something written by Stephen Furtick or some other, something else. But it's, you know, I think it's just a little bit of a poor choice of words. Um, I think there, there's that area, there's those lines in verse two that are fine, totally fine and true. I just think they're a little bit clunky. They might need a little bit more work, the bit about walking my road and feeling my pain. So on the whole, a great song. I think there are little tiny ways in which it could have been just tightened up a little bit. It feels weird to say that about somebody who, like Daniel, I also think maybe the, if not one of the, you know, best living songwriters in that that the church has. Um, so I, I don't do this with arrogance, but I do think there's just a little bit of tightening that could be done here. Daniel, what do you think? I think at some level, to the points you made. This goes to the value of of a peer review process, which we've been talking about somewhat over the last couple of podcasts. This is one of the rare modern hymns that he wrote that he wrote completely by himself. Hmm. And this is in part because it predates In Christ Alone. We talk about Keith Getty and Stuart Townend as the co-founders of the modern hymn movement. And from a standpoint of popularization and from a standpoint of In Christ Alone being the first song to really catch on in a big way that's not terribly out of out of line but he wrote this in 1999 and in christ alone was written i think maybe late 2000 but really introduced about 2001 so a couple of years later Um, almost everything he's written since he's written with at least one person maybe more who are sometimes giving him feedback and critique. He's a very careful lyricist, but I think the points you raise go to show that even the most careful lyricist is helped by review and feedback. Yeah. Uh, so those are just to your points. Uh, in general, I am fascinated with how a song engages a, either a passage of scripture or a scriptural concept, and I think this song really does an exceptional job of that taking the concept of Jesus being Emmanuel and unfolding it. Emmanuel in the incarnation, Emmanuel in the birth, so we have God with us literally here on this earth. Then Emmanuel in his earthly ministry and how that makes him our high priest, how he's God with us, how that applies to us, impacts us now. Uh, Emmanuel on the cross, both describing what he did there and rooting it in that, but also talking about how that frees us from the claims of hell, uh, how he's freeing our souls. Uh, As Emmanuel, God with us, his work of redemption complete 2,000 years ago, how that's being applied to us today. Uh, Then his glorification, how he's interceding for us today. That's placing how he's with us now, and then how he will be with us in eternity. Uh, This song just takes that concept not perfectly, but I think well, and unfolds that concept, lays it out, 
explains it exceptionally. I like uh, I like that God with us does not have a verbal tense attached to it. That God is with us or God was with us. And it seems like this song does what you're saying, applies God with us to the past, the present, and the future. So with that being said, what rating did you give that song? I'll do Daniel last. I'm excited. I want to ask. Should you go first, Tyler? I can go first. I give uh, So I think this is a very good song, and I'm going to give it four out of five rhythms. And the reason for the rhythms is I think this song employs rhythm really, really well. Um, I almost went with projectors because the music video looks like lyrics that are projected onto a board where you have like kind of inspirational images behind them. But rhythms, because um, in, in the first case, you, you have a kind of a what feels like a missed downbeat. One, two, and three, and four, and one, two, three, four, two, and three, and four. And then you have the pickups, da da dum dum da ya da dum dum dum. So it kind of builds, and then you actually don't have a phrase that starts on the downbeat until um, at the dawning of Emmanuel. So the last kind of half stanza of each or half line of each verse gets a real punch because the rhythm is employed so cleverly. Um, mm. Colin, what did you give this song? Well, I'm actually really glad I asked you to go first because because <laughs> I was yeah, I was not sure that my rating was was very fair. I was trying to r- figure out whether it was fair or not, but you've you've broken through ahead of me, which makes me gives me some comfort. I also gave it a four out of five uh, with much consternation. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to give it a five or a four. Give it four out of five poetic contractions. And Tyler, I don't know. I, I'm guessing that there's a 95% chance you know what a poetic contraction is. But I thought, well, maybe maybe there might be a 5% chance that I can stump a linguist. Is, is this Hedden? Is this what you're talking jargon. about? Yes. So, yes. In, and in linguistics, it even has a special term. And oh. in that, in, there are different kinds of it, but that's called syncope. In, okay. In linguistics, where a vowel disappears from the middle. Here I thought you might not know the term poetic contraction not only do you know it you also know the special um linguistic term so uh, lesson learned uh (laughs) (laughs) i won't think i can one-up you yeah so i was thinking about heaven because (laughs) in all of uh well not all of but i it's hard for me to think of a stuart townen song which doesn't use one of these yeah he really likes them and um you know just couldn't help but notice a little pattern there. I think the real question is, how do you pronounce that word? <laughs> is it hem Hen- or is it hem with an, uh, an a sound that's otherwise not even in the English language, except in kind of casual speech? Yeah. So I would pronounce it as hem with no V and a kind of yeah. M-like sound. Same, hem. A labiodental nasal is what I would pronounce it as. But that's beyond the... Uh, scope of this let's go to daniel we've got two fours are you going to what are you going to give this song you know i'm tempted to join you because there are some valid points i think the points that are raised though valid are minor enough that they would not impact my inclination to use this song in a congregational setting so I will give it five invisible askets. All right. Invisible so, askets. 
and an ascot is the type of hat that he virtually always wears. <laughs> you will almost never see him without an ascot on his head. Occasionally, you will see a newsboy style cap, and I didn't know this before looking it up for this. I am not a millennialist, if I may be permitted to use that word. I'm not sure if it's a neologism, but somebody who's a hat fanatic. I didn't know this coming in, but you will almost never find him without a hat in this general style on his head. But I can't find a video of him singing the song anywhere i can only find lyric videos and that sort of thing online and so you can't see him singing it but i nevertheless envision him singing it with a hat he always wears on his head that's the five invisible askets very nice love it Excellent. i may have put more time into that than i did the rest of the song <laughs> oh, well listeners thank you so much for tuning in and daniel thank you for being with us again we appreciate it it was a pleasure. Thank you. How can listeners find you? Daniel Mount, M-O-U-N-T dot com. All right. So head to danielmount.com. Check out the Expository Songs Project. And if you haven't heard last week's episode about that, uh, check that out. And we will uh, look forward to being with you again in one week. Thanks. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.